Let us say thank you one more time to the Whitesburg Baptist Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Thank you. The students and the adults who are here, thank you so much for being with us. I couldn't think of a, a better intro to the message today. Today we're going to be talking about sin. So take your uh, Bible, take the copy of God's Word that you brought with you, and turn with me to Psalm chapter 32. And know that we're going to be looking at many different chapters and many different books of the Bible here today as we jump from uh, three different passages of Scripture. So Psalm chapter 32 is where we are beginning and as you saw in the intro video, this is the year, 2016, is the year of evangelism for Aloma Church. And so everything we've been talking about and, and, and preaching on and singing about here in uh, the services are really geared toward sharing our faith and evangelism. And over the next six weeks, beginning today, we are going to be walking through what we're calling Paint the Town, which is a, a, a concept based upon the wordless book. I, I wrote a book that's going to be made available the Sunday after Easter. I'm very excited about this book. It, it's to give us principles of how to share our faith. This message series is not really to give principles on how to share our faith. Uh, we offer classes and things like that. But, but what we're going to be talking about here over these next six weeks are, are doctrine, key truths of Scripture that, that are founded upon the wordless book. Now, before I go any further, has anybody ever heard of the wordless book? Raise your hand if you've heard of the wordless book. Several of us have. For those of us who haven't, the wordless book is a tool that has been used. Uh, a lot of people believe that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British pastor, the great British preacher, is the one who started the wordless book and he spoke about it. What the wordless book is, is a book without words. Uh, it's just a book of colors. And as you saw the paintbrush with all the different colors painting the town, the colors of this wordless book are used as doctrine to be able to speak into the life of the lost. So many people have come to know the Lord Jesus uh, by using the wordless book. You've seen children walking around with bracelets with all those different colors on it. This is the concept of the wordless book. Oftentimes we will use the wordless book as an opportunity to, to share with children. And so, for example, if you take out your bullets and you look at the, uh, the wordless book paintbrush there, you see the color black. And that's where we're beginning this week. We're beginning with, with a very hard subject, a very big subject that we're going to talk about this Sunday, uh, and, and that's black. The black represents sin. Then the next color is red. Red represents the blood of Christ. And then you go on to the white. White represents the righteousness through Christ. Gold represents the promise of heaven. Blue, baptism. And then green, Christian growth. And so as we walk through these over the next six weeks, we're, we're basically going to be doing topical sermons. Uh, oftentimes we preach through books of the Bible. We'll be preaching through the book of Romans here very soon. But, but right now we're going to be digging deep into this doctrine. And for some of you, this is going to be brand new. We have a lot of, of new Christians in our congregation, and I, I love that. I love the fact that, that so many of us have come, and we, we, we've just come to know Christ, and we've just been saved. And, and so we have all these, these new members in our congregation, many not raised in a Baptist home or not even in an evangelical home. And so you come from many different backgrounds, and you don't quite know the basics of the Christian life. Well, you're going to be getting some of that here in this series. But it's also a good refresher course for those of us who have been saved for many years. You see, I've been saved for a number of years, but it's always, it's always important to come back to the basics, to come back to the fundamentals. So let's look at Psalm chapter 32 and begin looking here and launch from here and see what the Bible has to tell us about sin. 
Please stand in the honor of reading God's word, Psalm chapter 32, and we'll begin reading just the first two verses. David writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to, to deliver your word. And Father, today as we, we, we broach, we attempt to speak on this, this, this grand subject, Father, I know it, it, it's a very difficult thing to swallow, but Lord, it, it, it is an is a important doctrine that we have to understand because it's something that affects all of us. So Father, today as we talk about sin, I pray that you will open our hearts and open our lives that, that we may hear a word from you today. We ask this in Christ's name and all of God's people said, please be seated. There is a disease that plagues every single person. It's far more deadly and far more progressive than cancer. In fact, 100% of people will die from it. It's called sin. Now, I know that some people don't like to hear messages on sin, but let me remind you, it's the bad news that makes the good news so great. If you were to buy a diamond, men, you need to go buy your wives a diamond, all the women said. Ladies, I'm trying to help you out. All the women said. There you go. Men, you go and buy your wives a diamond, and when you go into the diamond store, you're going to get that diamond, and he's going to put it against what kind of backdrop? A black backdrop. Why is that? Because in that dark context, that dark backdrop, it brings out the vitality, the, the, the greatness, the, the grandeur, if you will, of that diamond. So it is with sin. Sin, the backdrop, the blackness of sin, tells us how great what Christ did for us really was. You see, it's because of sin and the badness of sin. And when we look at sin, we're not just looking at sin to look at sin, but we look at the blackness and the darkness of sin. And what it does is it reveals to us the beauty of what Christ has done, the power, the power. Now, as we, we look at what King David, King David was a man who was after God's own heart. He was a man who did many wonderful things for God. However, the effects of sin still plagued him as well. In the passage that we just read, Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 through 2, we see four descriptions of sin. He uses four words that describe sin. <clears throat> so we see the existence of sin. First of all, he uses the word transgression. You see it there in your Bible? He uses the word transgression. This implies defiance. It means rebellion, law-breaking. I don't know about you, but there's something within me that when somebody draws a line in the sand and says, don't cross it, what do we want to do? We want to cross it. This is, this is where this word comes from. This is, where, this is what transgression means. This is uh, the word defiance. It means rebellion. God has given us 10 commandments, and he said, don't break them. But every one of us have broken every one of those commandments, whether in spirit or in substance. This is why when, even if you just break one of the commandments, you've broken them all. This is what James said, right? In James chapter 2, verse 10, yet stumble in one point, you are guilty of all of them. So there's transgression. This is defiance. And then he uses another word. He talks about sin. This refers to a defect. It means missing the mark, falling short. A defect in, in the human spirit that, that just can't quite keep up. There's something missing, and we know that there's something missing. In life, we know there's something missing. There's a void in our heart, and we know there's something not right. And this is the result of the word sin. It leaves a black hole in our heart, and we try to fill it with so many things from the world, but yet we can never fill that void. It's sin. It's a defect. Then he talks about iniquity. This speaks of distortion. 
The Hebrew word here for iniquity means perversion. It means crooked. It means bent. The Bible tells us in, in the word iniquity that there is, there is a perversiveness. There is a crookedness, a, a warped sense of values of right and wrong in the human spirit, iniquity. Finally, he uses the word deceit. This implies deception. This is the aspect of sin that, that wants to cover up and make excuses for our lies and, and lie our way through it. So you see, sin's a problem. It's not pretty, it's ugly. Sin doesn't build anything up, but sin tears everything down. It's not good, it's bad. It does not honor God or pursue his ways. It stands in defiance. It shows our defect. It distorts, it deceives. And this is why scripture says it plagues all of us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now you may be sitting here this morning, you say, well, seriously preacher, I, I, I don't think I'm that bad. I don't think I'm that bad. I, I don't do the bad sins. Or, or maybe you even say, well, sin's not even my fault. Let's move from the existence of sin and now see the excuses for sin. Turn over with me to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we meet a man by the name of Adam, his wife Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, a, a very interesting thing happens. Adam and Eve just sinned. They, they, they broke God's law. God told them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But still yet, they did. They took of the fruit, and God told them not to. It wasn't the act of eating that was the sin, but it was the disobedience to God. And, and Adam basically is saying here in Genesis 3, he said, well, I, I know I'm not, ought, I'm not what I ought to be, but really, God, I'm not responsible for my own actions. God, I, I'm a victim. We do this too, don't we? We begin to make excuses. Like Adam made excuses when he was confronted with his sin. He, he said, God, it was the woman you gave me. He took his troubles like a man. He blamed it on his wife. Genesis 3.12, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the tree and I ate. He blamed his wife, but ultimately, who did he blame? He said, you're the one who gave her to me. I didn't choose her, you chose her for me. I didn't have a say in this matter. I looked around, I didn't see any other, any other woman. It's your fault, God. He, he, he started making excuses. It's not my fault. God, it, it, it's your fault. And that's so common today, isn't it? It's always somebody else's fault. My parents didn't raise me properly. The, the environment that was, not, was not a healthy environment, and, and, and on it goes. Sin is no longer a subject of recognition because we don't sin anymore. We, we, we've replaced that word sin and we say, well, I have an addiction or I have a disease or I have a disorder. We don't call it sin anymore because we try to separate ourselves from our problems. So it's no longer sin. Now it's a syndrome. We excuse ourselves. Now no one's guilty. It's somebody else's fault. Yet down deep, we, when we lay our head down on our pillows at night, we still feel guilt. The guilt is still there. We're still dealing with the guilt as a result of our sin. Do you know why we feel guilty? Because we are guilty, that's why. As long as we, we keep trying to get rid of the guilt, we'll never deal with the real problem. For those of us who have a garden, you, you understand that if you have a garden, you're growing vegetables. And you see weeds growing in that garden. If you take your scissors and you just cut the weed off at, at the soil level, what's going to happen? What, 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 what's that weed going to do? Is that weed going to just say, oh, he cut me off at soil level. I think I'm just going to die. No. What does the weed do? It grows back and it grows back in force. 
it grows back, and it grows back even stronger and bigger and larger than what it was in the first place. If you want to remove the weed, if you want the weed gone, you have to completely remove it at its core, at its root. However, when we deal with guilt and we, we just try to mask over guilt, it's like cutting off a, a, a weed at the soil level. We're not dealing with the problem. We're not dealing with the root problem. Why is it you feel guilty? Well, because you are guilty. It's because of your sin. Sin is the root problem. Guilt is to the spirit what pain is to the body. When you hurt, when there's pain, it's an indication that there's sickness there. Suppose you're driving your car. And when you're driving your car, that, that, that dreaded light comes on. That, that warning light comes on. Have you ever had that happen to you? You're driving your car and this warning light comes on. What do you do? Do you smash through that, that, that panel and just break that warning light? Well, that's not going to fix the problem, is it? It's not the warning light's fault that it came on. There, there, there's a bigger issue. This light is just telling you, hey, there's a bigger issue. You better get it checked on. That's what guilt is. When you try to just cover over guilt or, or deal with guilt, you're, you're smashing through that, that, that plastic just to remove a light. It's not the light's fault. It's not the guilt's fault. It's just doing what it's supposed to do. It's pointing to a much larger, bigger problem. And as long as we keep trying to get over our guilt in our own way, pushing it aside or, or making excuses, as long as we just keep dealing with guilt and we don't deal with the real problem, then, friends, you're never going to get over your guilt. There is a way to get over guilt. It's called grace. But before you can experience the grace of God, you have to admit the problem of sin. You first must deal with your problem of sin. That's the root. Guilt is the warning light, but sin is the root problem. Let me speak to the Christians for just a moment. I understand that there are some who, who feel guilty this morning over something that you've done in your past. Some past sin that you've done and, and, and you've committed that and you've gone to the Lord and said, Lord, forgive me for this sin. And the Lord has obviously, because his word tells us that he has washed over that sin. He has forgiven you of that sin. However, when you lay your head down at night, you continue to think about, you still feel guilty over what you have done. Let me speak into your life for just a moment. One of the hardest things that you can do as a Christian is not to ask for forgiveness. That's the easy thing. The hardest thing sometimes for us to do is to forgive ourselves, isn't it? over things that we have done because we know we have hurt so many people, we've broken the heart of God, and so often it's so hard for us to forgive ourselves. but when we don't forgive ourselves, then we're going to continue to live in this guilt. And when we continue to live in this guilt, Satan is going to get our mind off of where our mind needs to be. And when our mind's not on the things of God, our mind is going to be on the things uh, that, that don't bring about goodness and greatness in the things of the Lord. Ask for forgiveness, yes. But then forgive yourself. The devil may remind you of what you have done, but you remind him of what Christ has done for you. Embrace the forgiveness. Live in the forgiveness. The excuse for sin. Number three, we see the extent of sin. Turn over with me to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. And in Romans one and Romans three, we see six areas that sin has infiltrated in our life. Now understand that in a few, uh, about two months from now, we will be walking verse by verse through the book of Romans, and we're going to deal with all of these passages of scripture in much depth. 
today, I just want to hit them. I, I want to take a helicopter and, and come right above it and, and just point out and say, this is what Romans 1 and Romans 3 says. That this is really the extent of, of sin. So we're going to hit it and move on. There's going to come a time when we deal with it in, 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 great, in great matter. But, but today, let, let's, let's just look at it. The scripture is clear on the subject of sin. It says that it is an abomination against a holy God. Sin is an offense to a holy God. And sin affects every area of life. It eats away at who we are. Look at Romans chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse number, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse number 20. Notice what he says. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to a dishonorable passion. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It goes on. All these sins that are listed. And, and as I look at these sins, I, I see myself. We, we understand that sin infiltrates every area of our life. The first thing that Romans 1 tells us is that sin degrades our perception. It degrades our perception. Verses 20 through 23 speak of, speak of this. Something I've noticed as I've been getting older. My birthday is Wednesday. I'm turning 36 years old. I'm getting old. And, and as I'm getting older, I'm realizing things that, that, that I, I, I heard my dad, and I've heard many of you say, say this. As you get older, things just don't, don't function the way they used to function. And, and I've noticed that, that I used to have really good eyesight and now I find myself squinting. So if I'm preaching and I'm doing this, it's because I'm trying to make out if you're asleep or not. And, and I just can't see as good as I used to. If you see me coming down the road, just get out of my way. I, I'm just trying to see. But, but, but uh, uh, that, that, that's the way it is with sin. Sin does this. Sin clouds our judgment. Sin causes us to not be able to see the plainness of, of the Lord and of God. It messes with our thoughts. It messes with our minds. It messes with our eyes. This, this is why he, he says right here, we just read it. He says that, that God, God has clearly made himself known. There should be no such thing as an atheist. There should be no such thing as an agnostic, a person who says there is no God or there is no knowledge of God. That, that, that person should not exist if there was no sin. Why? Because all you need to do is open your eyes and look around you. Look, look at the sunrise. Look at the sunset. Look, look at the beauty of the oceans. Look at the beauty of the trees and the grass. Look at the intricacies of a seed. Look at the intricacies of your own life, your eyes and, and your brain and the blood vessels and all that God has put together. God says right here in his word that he has made himself known in all of creation. But he said the creation refuses to see the creator. What does that mean? It degrades our perception. We refuse to see God in all of this. We refuse to see him. Why? 
because of sin. Sin has crept in and we refuse to perceive the things of God because we, we, we prefer to live in our own sinfulness. Sin degrades our perception. It also defiles our purity. Verses 24 through 27 speak very clearly. Speak very clearly about sexual immorality. Mainly, Paul here in Romans 1 is focused in on homosexuality, but that is just one of many perversions of, of, of uh, sexuality that God has given to us. Sin distorts, it defiles our purity. It causes us to seek things that are not good and to pervert those things that God said is good. In, in our country, we're trying to redefine marriage. People seek to perform all kinds of impure things. And the Bible said at the root of this, at the root of this, the root of this is not Democrat or Republican. The root of this is sin. It's based out of sin. Understand that just because you like it or because you want it or because it makes you feel good does not make it okay. There are certain things that God said are off limits. There are certain lines that God has drawn in the sand and said, do not cross this, even within our sexuality. He drew a line, he said, over here, that's unholy. Over here, these are things you don't do. And he drew a line in the sand. But when God draws a line in the sand or anyone draws a line in the sand, what do we do? We, we come right up to that line, see how close we can get. And then all of a sudden we fall over. And before we know it, we're living in this sinful desire. It defiles our purity, number three, it destroys our principles. It destroys our principles. Th this is how and why a politician, we're in, we're in political season, we're in political mode, so I'm picking on politicians today. Th th this is how a politician can tell you, I stand for this, and I, I, I believe in this. And then he goes off into uh, the Capitol or into D.C., and he does something completely different of what he promised he was going to do. And then he comes right back to you and he swears up and down that he did exactly what he promised he was going to do, even though he did the exact opposite of it. And he never blinks. You say, dude, are you a robot or something? I mean, you, you said this, you did this, and then you came back and you said you did what you said you was going to do, but you it's so confusing. But, but why is that? Why is, and it's not just politicians, it's all of us. Why is it that, that we do this? It's because of sin. It destroys our principles. If you take the list here in verses 29 through 32, basically he negates the Ten Commandments. He said in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. But he said here, because of sin, we, 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 we don't honor our father and mother. He said, I, I want you not to commit murder in the Ten Commandments, but here it says that you take lives. The, the word of God is what we are to live by. It gives us our principles. We, we, we base our foundation on the word of God. But when we remove the word of God, we stand upon faulty foundations. This is why I believe our country is on a slippery slope. You cannot, listen to me, you cannot remove God and you cannot remove his word from every area of public life and still be a people based upon principle. When God's law and God's word are removed, you remove the foundation and principles that are built upon it. And when you take, when, 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 when you take it away, you have exactly what we have in America today. People living in their sin with reckless abandonment. No desire, no, no, no filter, no stopping. Romans 1 talks about these three areas. Romans 3 goes even further. Turn over to Romans 3 and look at, at verses 9 through 18, verses 10 through 18. Romans 3, verse 10, we'll begin there. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He goes on, he says, sin, in Romans 1, he talks about those. And then he comes over to Romans 3 and he picks it back up. And he says, it also discards our character. It discards our character. Verses 10 through 12, no one does good, no, not one. Here, we, 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 we are created originally in the image of God with a great purpose and a great plan of God. But sin has marred that. It, 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 it's marred his purpose. It mars our business deals, our name, our word. We don't seek after God anymore. We seek after my way. What benefits me? What, what is going to feed my flesh? You see, it discards character. Number five, it disrupts conversation. Verses 13 and 14, he speaks on the tongue. You see, man is unique in the sense that we are the only created being that can carry on a deep, meaningful conversation with one another. Yes, animals have the ability to speak. We, we, we hear the wells, and, and the wells uh, converse, and they, they, they communicate one another. But only humans have the ability for deep conversation. Only humans can write poetry, can write music, can, can, can worship God. You see, God created us with the capacity to worship him, but sin has affected our tongue. With the same mouth that we, we offer praises to God, we, from the same mouth, offer curses to God. That's a result of sin. Sin disrupts our conversation. Finally, it distorts our character, verses 15 through 17. Anger and hatred and jealousy are all a result of sin. You know, following Adam and Eve, we picked on Adam and Eve some here today. Let, let's, let's continue that. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they had children. Two boys, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel had an altercation. Cain took Abel's life, killed his brother. Rose up in jealous heart, rose up against his brother and killed him. I cannot imagine being a father of, of, of two children. I, I cannot imagine the feeling of a parent who has to bury their own child. And I think about Adam and Eve. And when Abel, their son, laid there dead, and they had to lower his body into the earth, Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. As you were formed, so you shall return. I can't help but to think that as Adam and Eve lowered their son back into the earth, if their heart did not break because they knew that it was their own sin that caused this to happen. Their own sin. But it, they're not the only ones who are guilty though, are they? No, we're guilty too. Friend, we don't, let, let's not get on Adam and Eve because we would have made the same choice they made. When Satan slithered in and, and said, surely God did not say, we would have done the same exact, we may have done it quicker than them. We may not even have to have the Satan to, to, to tempt us. We may have just took it. We would have done the same thing. See, that's why sin doesn't make us sinners. We sin because we are sinners. A person, a, person, a person isn't a liar because he tells lies. He tells lies because he's a liar at heart. We all experience this in our lives. Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, once said, sin is not weakness. Sin is not a disease. It is red, 
handed rebellion against God, and the magnitude of that rebellion is expressed by Calvary. In other words, if you want to know the exceeding greatness and, 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 and the, the wickedness and, and shamefulness and the sinfulness of sin, all you need to do is to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see God's only son bleeding and dying and paying the penalty for that sin. There at Calvary, there at the cross, we see the damning consequences of sin. Back up in Romans 3.12, the, 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 Paul writes, they have all turned aside. They, they, have, they have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. You say, are you sure about that, Pastor? There is none good. You say, I, I, I know several people that are good. Well, so do I. I know lots of good people. I know, I know good people who aren't even believers. Can you imagine? I even know people who aren't believers who are good, and in some ways they are actually more good than some believers that I know. Can you believe that? But you have to understand, he's not talking about human goodness here in Romans chapter 3. He's not talking about human goodness here. The standard is the goodness and the righteousness of God. He said in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus himself said, there is only one who is good, and that is God. What is God's standard of righteousness? Well, Jesus answered that question as well. Matthew 5, 48, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You say, come on, man, no one's perfect. Exactly the point. That's the point. If, If you continue to trust in your own goodness, you are doomed to fail. I want you to think about all the good people that you know. Can you, can you picture some of them in your mind? In fact, let, let, let's not even just go people that you know. Let, let, let's think about all the good people that have ever lived. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve and think about all the good people that lived. And I, I want you to somehow put all of that human goodness into one personality, into one human being. And, and they have somehow received all the goodness of, of, of mankind. And, and now here they are with all of this goodness. Do you understand that that person would still have to come to Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness and repent? Because it's not through human ingenuity, it's not through human goodness that we're saved. If we could be saved by being good, then, then the cross is the biggest mistake that has ever happened. Have you ever thought about that before? If we could be saved by any other way but the cross of Jesus Christ, then, then, then the cross was a colossal mistake. Do you really think that God would send his son? I, I told you this before. I have a son. I would never give up my son for anyone. I wouldn't. I love each one of you. But I would never put my son's life on the line for anybody. I wouldn't. I would not do it. I'll, t- I'll give my life for my son, but I would never put my life son up for anyone. Can you imagine here is God the Father who says, and he looks down into people who shake his, their fists at him, and, 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 and here is God who puts his son's life on the line for us? Do you really think that if there was another way to heaven that God would not have chosen that way? Well, of course he would have. But you see, there is no other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Human goodness will never meet the high and holy standard of God. Never will. You say, I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I mean, why, why, why does God look upon this sin and, and, and 
he, he makes all of this sin. You know, I don't sin the big sins. I, I, I'm, not in, I'm not in the big sins. I'm not out killing anybody. Remember what we said last week. If you were here last week, we talked about Moses. We said Moses was a man who did a lot of things good. But there's two major mistakes that Moses made. And of those two mistakes, we look at him and we say, well, what's the big deal? It's not like he killed somebody, right? Oh, wait, yeah, he did that too. But, but the, these two that we're talking about wasn't murder. The first one was when God spoke to him from the burning bush, and he said to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to speak to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, not I can't, but he said, I won't. I won't do it. And if, uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 4 says, the anger of the Lord burned up against Moses. He said, Moses, I want you to go get your brother Aaron. I want you to bring Aaron in here. Moses went and got Aaron, brought Aaron in, and, Mo and God said, Aaron, here's what I told your brother to do. He didn't want to do it, so I'm going to tell you, and you're going to do it, and I'm going to give you the blessing for doing it. What was the blessing that God gave to Aaron? Aaron's children became the Levites, became, became the priests, right? The ones who communed with God, the ones who led the people in worship. It was the sons of Aaron that became the priests of God. This blessing did not belong to Aaron. This blessing was meant for Moses. But Moses said, no, I, I, I'm not going to do this. I can't do this. I won't do this. You say, well, what's the big deal? All he said is he, he, he's a stutterer. Pastor, he's a stutterer. He had a reason why he couldn't do it. He was just being honest. No, he was being sinful. God, if God tells you you can do something, then, friend, you can do it. The second time, that was at the first of his, his, his career. The second was at the end. He had been fed up with the people of Israel, right? I mean, they had been complaining about everything. And he goes in with Aaron into the tent of meeting, and God says, I want you to speak to a rock, and I want you to speak to that rock, and from that rock's going to come living water. It's going to come water. They're going to, they're going to drink of this. So Moses leaves the tent of meeting. He comes out, and God told Moses to speak to the rock, right? But what does Moses do? He takes his staff, and he strikes it not once but twice. And God said, because of that, Moses, you're going to die and you're never going to see the land of promise. He said, what's the big deal? He hit a rock. I've done a whole lot worse than that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the act of hitting a rock. He was being disobedient to God. And what we see in both of these situations where he said, God, I can't speak for you, and where he struck a rock twice when God told him to speak, both of these show disobedience, and both of them show us that there are consequences to our sin. Sin, we, 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 we make sin big, we make sin small, but in God's eyes, all sin is big. And, and what do we do? We, we, we try to work our way. We, we try to please God by doing things for God. When we, we can't do that. Isaiah said our righteousness, our goodness are like filthy rags. He used the word rags here to describe the, 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 the putrid, the, the, the smelling, the diseased rags that were taken off of leper's sores. Can you imagine that? The, the, this, pulsating, this pulsating disease of leprosy, and they would put rags over the leprosy to, to keep the pus from, from, from going everywhere, and, and they would pull these rags, and this is the word he used, and he said, that your, your, your righteousness are like these lepers' rags in the sight of holy God. You see, we fall short. I know what some of you are thinking. Wow, Pastor Jolly, gee whiz, I'm glad I came to church today to hear this message. 
This is going to help me face tomorrow. Next week on Easter, we're going to deal with the solution, the answer. We're going to deal with the good news. We're going to move from black of sin. We're going to move to red, which is the blood. And I hope that you'll invite your lost friends and your family to church next week. I assure you, they're going to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I truly believe that we're going to see lost people saved next week. But as we think about sin, and I want to close with this. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1, he said, The whole head is sick, the whole, the whole heart faints. From the sole of the feet all the way to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. What he's saying here is that, that, that from top to bottom, inside and out, we've all sinned. Let me tell you briefly and come back next week and, and, and we'll get to the rest of the picture. What is the cure for sin? If we're desperately sick and we're, we, we, are all, we are all sinful in our sin, what's the cure? Well, there's only one cure. The cure is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Friend, do you realize that God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ? That he who knew no sin became sin so that we may be called the righteousness of God. He died on the cross as our substitute. He accepted our penalty and the judgment of sin. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Lord, save me from sins that call themselves little. We just dealt with that. As we are in Passion Week, let me speak to the Christian for just a moment. When we're in Passion Week, let us not minimize sin. When you sin and the Spirit of God comes upon you and brings conviction, maybe you tell a lie, maybe, maybe you make a bad business deal, maybe, maybe you anger and it's not righteous anger, but it's unrighteous anger boils up. I want you to stop right after you sin. I want you to do this, this Passion Week, I want you to stop. No matter what sin it is that you commit, I want you to stop. And I want you to, to cognitively think that that one sin nailed our Savior to the cross. It's not a big sin. What a big sin. But that one sin, that one sin, in our opinion wasn't a big sin, but in God's opinion, that one sin nailed his son to the cross. And as we're preparing to go into this week, I, I, I hope and I pray that, that we think through, we think through and we begin to get a, a concept of what, how God views sin. Sin breaks the heart of God, but Christ died for all sin. Sin will either be pardoned in Christ or punished in hell. What we do with Jesus Christ determines our destiny. Jesus said, be born again. We've all been born in sin. But friend, you don't have to die in your sin. You can be born again to new life.